I want to start today by telling you uh, a little bit about a tortoise. Here he is, or she is, I'm not sure which, Manuela. And uh, this is Manuela, who is a red-footed tortoise, uh, for those of you that don't recognize species of tortoise straight away. And um, this tortoise, Manuela, lives in Brazil, uh, Rio de Janeiro, and uh, was a family pet. In 1982, it went missing. And the family searched extensively for it, but could not find the tortoise. They believed that as they were having work done on the house, what had probably happened is uh, Manuela had crawled out, had walked out, and was lost somewhere all around. They didn't know, but just uh, thought that he had gone. Thirty years later, after the father of the family had died, the children were going through some of the property, and particularly one room. Uh, where their father, who was a keen uh, fixer of electrical things, had stored many, many different broken items, always believing that perhaps one day the spare parts would come in use for repairing something. Um, they took out onto the street an old broken record player. And who should crawl out but Manuela, the tortoise, 30 years or more later, um, if you're wondering how it survived for that long, apparently um, red-footed tortoises don't eat very much, uh, which uh, isn't surprising if it survived for 30 years, but they suspect it survived maybe on insects, uh, termites that would have been in and around the floor, and that was enough for it to survive for 30 years, hidden in a box in a room. The daughter... Um, uh, Lenita said how amazing it was to have the family pet back again after all that time. Isn't it amazing when something is restored to you that you thought was lost forever? Uh, and maybe you have had your own experience. It might be a big thing. It might be something quite small of something that you thought you'd lost and then you found it and the joy of finding it again. This is, is, of course, at the heart of the story that we have just heard. The story of a, a younger son going away from the father, looking like everything was lost, like he was gone forever, but returning and discovering the father's love for him. It, for some of us, it may be a new story, but for many of us, it may be a very familiar story. It's one of those stories that Jesus told that is very popular in the telling because it, it's a great story to hear. And what we're going to do as we look at this is we're going to look at it from three different aspects over the next three weeks. From the perspective of the younger brother, the older brother, and the father. And you may be thinking, well, is there going to be anything new? Anything that I've not heard before? Well, I suspect there will be, because as I've been studying this, I've discovered new things. And one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to try and look back at how the first hearers of this story might have heard it. Uh, that's a very important thing to do whenever you read the Bible, because we tend to read it through our understanding of this particular culture. But to really get the riches that there are in the text, we need to go back and understand something of how it was heard all these years ago. N.T. Wright, uh, Tom Wright, writes about 
this kind of thing and this kind of study of the Bible. And he uses an example. Imagine for a moment that there is somebody who is driving to see their new place that they live in. Uh, And they come back and they report to you the experience. Uh, And they say to you, I am mad about the flat. Uh, And he says, to to people in Britain, what you hear, I'm mad about the flat is, I really love this new apartment that I'm moving to. He says, say it in America, I'm mad about the flat means you probably got a puncture in the car on your way there. You see, same words that mean different things. Uh, And we see it all the time, even in recent years. You know, what a mouse means to us in our generation is very different from 50 years ago. What the wireless means is very different to us to what it meant a number of years ago. So unless we try to understand some 2,000 years ago in a different culture how they would have heard it, we, we could miss things because of the way we read it through our eyes rather than understanding how they would have heard it and at that time. So that's what we're going to do. And I I think it's an exciting thing to do. uh, And I hope and pray that you will be blessed as we do that, as we hear how they would have heard it, and then understand why it is relevant for us today and how it speaks to us today. And that's where we get the real message from Scripture, where we understand what Jesus was saying to the people of the time and then apply it to how it is relevant to us today. So I hope you have a good time uh, as you listen to this. I hope it's a time where we uh, experience God's voice to us, his challenge to us, his encouragement to us in the journey that we are on in life. The parable of the lost son. Uh, And today we're talking about the younger son who is looking for happiness, looking for for happiness. And we're going to see, we're going to look at the journey. It it comes from his leaving, and particularly we're going to look at his returning. We could look at his time away as well. I'll say a few brief things about that, but primarily we're looking at his leaving and his returning. And can I say at this point, I know I am leaving out big parts of the story, but it's over three weeks. Uh, And so there are other things that we're going to come back to and look at it, uh, look at the context of it and all those kind of things. But we're going to look at the leaving and the returning of the son. And today, as we look at this, we're going to look at things like um, the, the private, uh, private idea for uh, individual freedom, private freedom. We're going to look at discontent. We're going to look at issues to do with repentance and what that really means. The younger son looking for happiness. About a month or two ago, I saw a picture which was from uh, the police in Norfolk, and they had put a picture on, I think it was the Twitter feed that they have, saying that they were shocked about a motorist that they had pulled over somewhere near Wyndham. I think it was, David, I don't know whether you will know this, but um, uh, the comment that you might make is that maybe the tread on the tire is below its 1.6 millimeter depth. I think it's about that, isn't it? Looking at Marcus, he's nodding. That's great. Look at the experts here. Um, This is the way they were driving um, without a tire at all. That's shocking in itself. They breathalyzed the driver. Perhaps it's not surprising to understand, but shocking nevertheless, that they were three times the legal limit. A story uh, which, when you follow the comments down below, many, many people shocked. How could somebody try and drive a car 
like that without a tire. It's a shocking story. That was the statement of the police. It's a shocking incident, and many people concurred. A as we come to this story of the younger son and look at his leaving, the first thing that we need to understand is for the people who were hearing this story, it was a shocking story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. When you look into how that was heard and what it was actually saying is this. When does somebody get the estate? When does somebody receive an inheritance? When someone dies. So the younger son is going to his father and basically saying to him, I wish you were dead. I can't wait for you to die. I want my inheritance now. That's a shocking thing to say, isn't it? That's the first shock they would have got. The second shock they would have got is this, the father's response. So he divided his property between them. The father responds to his request. You see, how they would have expected it to happen at the time is the request would have been denied and the younger son was punished. That's what you would expect to happen, but it doesn't. Uh, and so it would grab their attention straight away to say, what on earth is going on here? Why? Why? Has the father acted like that? Well, we'll be talking about that in a couple of weeks' time. But before we get to the father acting like that, we'll think about why did the son act like that? Now, Jesus doesn't explain it, so we've got to be careful about making too many conclusions from this. But there are a couple of things that we might say. And I, I think this idea, he's leaving looking for something better. He's leaving looking for something better. Uh, and it's interesting uh, to note the words that are used here. Father, give me my share of the estate. doesn't use the word inheritance. Why? Uh, this is where it gets really interesting. Well, I found it really interesting. I hope you do as well. Uh, the inheritance carries with it a responsibility. You see, we're talking about people who would perhaps be living in village life. No social security, no, um, no pensions. You relied on your family network. So receiving an inheritance, receiving the family property, was also about saying, I will take on a responsibility to look after other people within my family. There's a responsibility that goes with inheritance. Now, he doesn't use this. He just wants the estate. Why? Because he doesn't want the responsibility. He wants freedom. You see, he thinks that his happiness will be at his greatest if he can get rid of his ties of responsibility. If he can just do what makes him happy without having to look out for anyone else, his life will be better. That's what we might understand from this. Where does it come from? It comes from a, a feeling, presumably, of discontent. My life could be better if only I didn't have these responsibilities. If only I could get away with all that I possess, so I have my rights, if I could just look out for me with no responsibility, that will make me happy. I just wonder, let's transport this now to our hearing and what we might think about this. Do we live in a culture in a society where what people want is their individual freedom to make their own choices, 
to be able to spend money as we want, to do what we want, when we want it. I think probably my view is that is how we respond. Uh, and we can look at all manner of things, and we don't have time to go into them, but we, we don't necessarily worry about the impact that it has on future generations. We don't look at the impact that it has on other people in our world. Let me just throw out a couple of examples here. Let's think about uh, ethical buying, for example. When we go to buy clothes, do we think about the impact of the people who have made these clothes, whether they are exploited? Or because they're out of sight, do we not worry about it? I confess, I try to, but there are times when I forget about it. I see a bargain. I like a bargain. And I want to respond to it. Have I thought? What am I thinking about? I like my freedom because I have some money in my pocket to be able to go out and spend. Think about the environment. Do I think about the decisions that I make and the impact that it has? on the environment, you know, when you've seen the pictures of the sea with all the plastic in it and the effect that it has on God's creation. Am I thinking about that? Or do I just love my individual freedom to make the choices that I want to make? You see, I, I don't think we're that different in that sense from the younger son. As I read the story and as we look at it over these three weeks, we're going to be looking at how we might identify with each of the different characters. Uh, and this is certainly something where I can identify with the younger son, that desire at times to just live life as I want to, without having the responsibility for the impact of the decisions that I make. Uh, and I wonder how much of this, um, this desire for freedom, comes from a sense of discontent. You see, the, son, the younger son is discontented with how life is at the minute. He wants something different. Do you know what? Our whole economic system is built on discontent. You know, I used to teach economics. One of the first things I would teach to economic students was this, that um, in, in the capitalist system that we're under, it relies on something, the principle of insatiable wants. We always want more. That's what it means. There's always more that we want. Look at our advertising. How many millions are spent on advertising? Why? Because the advertisers want to tell us our life will be better if only we have this product. And it must work because they wouldn't be paying all this money if it didn't work. If they can create discontent in people, if, if we can realize that we're missing out on something, people will search after that. Uh, and that's what is happening for the younger son. He's got this feeling of discontent that is leading him to say, I want my life to be different. I want to get rid of my responsibility. I want freedom because then I will be happy. Then I will be content. It's like the holy grail, contentment and happiness. And of course, that's what people are after in our world. Uh, and I think what I want to just challenge, what I wanted to challenge myself with is this. Um, the antidote, if you like, for a desire for freedom is to have a community commitment. One of the culture statements of our church says that we are community committed. In other words, our faith is not just about me and how it affects me. Uh, and it isn't just about whether I want to do things as a response to my faith. There is a community commitment that says we have a responsibility beyond ourselves in how we respond to God. That's what we want to say as a church, and that's who we should be as believers. Our verse of the year, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
teaching them to obey everything I have commanded, tells us that we are not to be people who primarily see our faith as individual, an individual desire to just live my life of faith as I want to. We have a responsibility with it as well. The younger son tries to escape that. The call that we have is to be committed to other people, committed to other people here and committed to other people outside of faith as well, committed to make a difference. The antidote in our communities, for our community, an antidote for the desire for freedom, for individualism, to be committed to those outside of ourselves. Uh, and perhaps for a sign of discontent, we could say we need to learn contentment. You know, if so much of our society is built on discontentment, on trying to persuade us that we want things that we haven't got, we need to learn what it means to be content. That's what Paul says. He says this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. You see, what he's learned is this. The contentment comes not through what you have, not through what you do, but actually through a relationship with the father. You see, at the heart of this story of the younger son is his desire to break off communication with his father. He goes for a search for happiness outside of love of God, and it doesn't work. And what Paul says to us is, look, I've learned the secret of how to be content, how to be happy in life. Would that more people who are searching for happiness and contentment in life discover this, as Paul says it. It's not about what you have. It's not even about what you do. It's about being in relationship with the Father who loves us. My hope and prayer for us is that we have a community commitment that sees our spiritual journey as more than just about me and sees it as a part of a much wider thing and that we discover contentment that comes through knowing God, our Father, who loves us. This is a picture of a couple called John and Daniela. They got engaged a few months ago and uh, got engaged in New York. They were in Times Square, and uh, John managed to drop the engagement ring down a drain. <laughs> Just a few hours after they had agreed to get married. They called the police, and uh, they came to help look for it. They got the drain up and tried to find it. They couldn't find it. So John and Daniela left and flew home. Um, they didn't leave a forwarding address because they thought, that's it, it's gone. But the next day, the police went back, and they did discover the ring. Uh, so what they did is they sent out a Twitter feed. Um, you may not be able to read the writing, but they sent out a picture of the couple with um, the request that says, we, you know, wanted for dropping his fiancée's ring in Times Square, New York City. She said yes, but he was so excited that he dropped the ring into a grate. Our New York Police Department special cops have rescued it and would like to return it to the happy couple. Help us find them. Uh, and it went viral, and they did find it. 
uh, and they were very grateful. John did comment, actually, that he was getting a lot of teasing from his friends. He said, my street cred is shot. My street cred is shot. Uh, that is actually the experience here of the youngest son. Very soon, you know, what he does is he sells everything. Um, he goes away to a far-off country, and there he squanders his wealth in wild living. Uh, we very often take a, a moral view of this, that he's doing a lot of immoral things. Um, we'll come back to this probably next week. But the actual language that is used is suggesting that what he does, most of all, is he just spends money very freely. It's not about an ethical judgment in here in the way that he's spending. It's just he's spending freely very freely, without a thought to the consequences. In fact, what is suggested is that it may well be that he was trying to buy, if you like, to be very generous towards other people. It's something that other people would look at you very well for if you were generous. So his generosity is to kind of impress other people. That, that's the kind of understanding that we get here. That's what he does. Very soon, all the money's gone. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country. For hired here, imagine uh, if you've ever seen those things or experienced it where you are a tourist in a country and you get people, perhaps you're driving a car and you've seen them, they come and they want to wash your windscreens. Or, or you get out of the car and there are people who, um, who, who want to carry your bags for you and want to sell you all kinds of stuff. This is the kind of hire. It's kind of a clinging to you. It, it's almost saying as it's an unwelcome hiring out. You know, he's trying to hold on to it. He's still looking for happiness. He wants in this country to find happiness. He needs food. He needs a job. So he clings to people to try and get that. Uh, and look at what happens. You know, talk about street cred going. He would have been recognized as a Jew. That's what they, how they would have heard the story. And the one thing Jews would not want to do, well, there are a few things, but one thing in particular is work with pigs. Pigs were considered unclean. It's not what you do. Uh, so this is why we can understand it about being clinging to that life, because actually what they're trying to do is, you know, if there's one job to try and get rid of this person, let's get him to work with the pigs, because that's the last thing he'll want to do. The worst job you could imagine for him. But he takes it because it's all there is. And then finally, he comes to his senses and he says, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here am I, stuffed, starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he gets up and goes to his father. Now, I just want to explore in this moment for a little bit, as we look at him returning, what's going on here? You see, we often look, as we read this story, at where's the moment where he recognizes he's made a mistake? Is it at this point in the story? I want to suggest it isn't at this point in the story. What's his motivation for going back home? Is it, does he say here, oh, I've been really stupid. I've left everything behind. I, what an idiot I've been. No. What is he concerned about? Uh, the other people have food to eat and I don't. He's hungry. That's his motivation for going back at this place. He's still looking for happiness. You know, he left his father's home. 
looking for happiness, believing it would be found here. Now he's here, he doesn't have food, so he believes he would be happier back here. He's still looking for happiness. He's not changed at all. Now, what has changed is rather than going away from the Father, he's going back to the Father, but he is still ultimately looking for happiness. Uh, And you know what as well? He's still looking to be in control. He's still looking to be in control of things because what he says is, I'll go. He he doesn't see himself as a son again. He says, I'll go and try and see if I can become a hired hand. Now, sometimes we look at that and think, oh, that's about being a servant in the father's household. It's not about that. Being a hired hand would be about being trained in a trade where you would go to a different village and ply that trade, but he would need his father's blessing to be trained. So he's going back and saying, look, Train me so I can be independent and I can live on my own, away from you still. He's not going back to look for a relationship with the Father. Uh, And you see, there are a couple of things that really struck me about that. First of all, it's this. Even when we come to the Father, even when we come to church, we can still be in that place where we're trying to do things in our own strength. We can still be in that place where what we're looking for is our own happiness. We can still be in that place where really we're coming to God just because we're looking to be content rather than experience the relationship that is on offer. We need to move out from being trapped. He's trapped in this rat race, if you like, of trying to find contentment, trying to find happiness, searching for it, trying to do it in his own strength. He needs to discover the Father's love for him. Uh, And it says something about what it means to say sorry and what it means to confess. Uh, Look at this in terms of what he plans to say. He says, I'll go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Jesus was speaking to people who knew the law and knew the scriptures. We'll talk more about the context of this story next week. But they would have heard this. This is a paraphrase of what Pharaoh says to Moses back in Exodus 10, towards the end of the various plagues that come on him. What he's trying to do is he's trying to manipulate Moses into thinking that he's saying sorry when he isn't really. That's what he's doing here. He's trying to manipulate it. He's saying the right things, but not actually had a heart change. And you know, that's what can happen to us in church. We can say all the right things, but our heart is not really changing. What we need is heart change. Where does repentance happen? Well, this is what I think, for what it's worth. While he's still a long way off, his father sees him, is filled with compassion for for him. He runs to his son, throws his arms around him, and kisses him. The son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't go on with his plan. I think there's a reason for that. He doesn't talk about becoming a hired hand. He suddenly sees his father's love with him. He sees his father with fresh eyes. This is the moment of change. Uh, And I just wonder if for some of us here today, there is this new way of seeing God and experiencing his love, a fresh experience of God's love that he wants to bless us with today, which changes things. 
Because we can try so many things in our own strength. We can try and do things again and again, living in our own strength, looking for contentment, looking for happiness, even coming to the Father for it. But what we need is a fresh sight of God and his love for us. That's what happens for the prodigal, for the lost son. He sees his father's love with fresh eyes. And at the beginning of this series, and in the remaining time that we have this morning, I simply want to say this and want to pray in a moment that we will see the Father's love for us with fresh eyes. Because that's when we will move beyond our individual desire for the things that we want and we will suddenly have more of a kingdom perspective to see the world as God does. It's at that moment that we will lose discontentment and find the secret of contentment. When we see the Father's love with fresh eyes.